This is Superfood Sundays, a plant-based podcast with Chef Lynette. You know what I mean? It's so draining to start a high-impact company, or just a company in general. Yeah, you could be selling water bottles in the corner. Every type of entrepreneurship is draining to the founder. And it's even more draining when you don't have the right team or the right investors, the right product fit. And so if you have the right mental health capacity, the right community, the right squad, the right weather that you need to be around, the right vibe, the right music, all of those things really affect how a team and a founder can lead and show up. And so it's just been a really great decision for me. Now, I really enjoy long walks. Long walks have really helped me, my mental health over during this pandemic. And then I reached back out to a former college friend. I actually competed in college as well, track and field. I was like a top javelin and discus thrower, which no one thinks of because I'm like kind of (laughs) short for for those roles. Javelin? Yeah. I'm like average height like five, six. You can look at the Olympics. These throwers are like five, 10, six, one, even the women. And so my dorm mate was on the UNC Chapel Hill boxing team. And he moved to Austin a few years ago and we reconnected on Instagram. So I've been training with him a little bit on the boxing side. Okay. And just doing like regular lifting just to get back into it because it used to be so much stronger. So it, it hasn't been great the past few months. My schedule has been just all over the place, but that's really what I got back into. Just like strong, like one hour sort of high endurance lifting and, and boxing. Okay. Wow. And so from the track and field experience being younger, because I've interviewed quite a few athletes on the pod and they all have a very similar answer to the question I'm about to ask, but how has that just spilled into your not only adult life, but obviously your entrepreneurial life? Yeah, my mental endurance, my confidence and my ability to achieve like a random goal that I set out is like top tier, I think. Yeah. Um, It's also interesting to look back at because it's affected my ego in a weird way. My high school, Mean Girls was like based off of my high school. I'm not saying that I'm mean, but actually (laughs) (laughs) I'm friends with so many different groups of people, but like my main friend group in high school, we were like the smart athletes. So like we went and did sports at all the top schools and Mm. college and like Ivy League. And we felt really balanced, at least Mm -hmm. as high schoolers. And so we would always talk about like athletes and homecoming queens and and kings that like basically peaked in life at 17. Yes. And like how we didn't want to be there. But one thing that did peak in life for me was like my physical fitness, like 2021. I got back in fairly good shape at the beginning of the pandemic that I hadn't been around in probably 10 years. I always think about how athletes or former entrepreneurs that had a lot of success, like how many years you carry over the ego and the confidence from that success. And you almost like think you're there. So I'm thinking I'm still fit. And I work (laughs) out with my like boxing trainer and he just kills me for months. So it's always a big ego check to think about those experiences now and like how you need to reframe and evolve your mind and body to entrepreneurship all the time. Okay. A little humbling moment, a little check. So when it comes to 
your diet, how has it changed since that moment? You know, those moments of training, because I know a lot of times when we're younger, we feel really invincible, especially athletes, and you end up kind of eating whatever because you're going to burn it. I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. This is one of the reasons why I do what I do, because my diet in high school and college, even as a top national athlete, was terrible. Mm. And part of the reason it was terrible is because we didn't have either better options at home or better knowledge at home or better options at school. I was a biology student in undergrad, and I used to sit down with my science teachers and study the choices of the student body, which I think is a really an early marker in how I shaped my career today. It was just those observations. Mm. And I always thought it was crazy that we would go to the cafeteria and eat all types of cookies and flaming Hots and Minute Maid juices with not real juice and just try to perform. Or we would struggle to do a sprint after eating Flaming Hots for the day. We're doing suicide runs today. Don't eat oh, Flaming no. Hots before basketball practice. Like other conversations we're having, but we're not really thinking about the short and long-term effects of yeah. these ingredients. And of course we can bounce back a lot more. And sort of just looking back at those experiences and like my time and meeting people in my twenties and in my thirties now, I have a grandmother who's been uh, vegan for 45 years now. That's phenomenal. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That was going to be actually my next segue that I found out. You have a lot of farmers in your family and vegans in your family. And that's a really big question I ask all the time is for many of us, there were little influences. You kind of touched on that, that you look back and, oh my God, I was me the entire time. This was this the entire time. And so it seems like for someone like you, it was quite easy because not only were people around you totally ready to accept whatever good dietary change you would make, they were actually living and walking the walk and talking mm -hmm. the talk themselves. Mm -hmm. So you had your grandmother and then who else did you have? I had both grandmothers. It's interesting to see like where their bodies are today. I almost use them as like longitudinal studies for my life. One's been vegan for 45 years and she's 90 and yeah. she's a yoga instructor still. It's interesting because she um, hasn't been able to practice and teach as much in the past two years because of the shutdown. And I think like mentally things are changing a lot for her because she's a lot of less physical activity in her body. So I see how like her diet and physical activity has really helped her live, you know, long quality life. My other grandmother grew up on a farm. Her father acquired several hundred acres of land in Alabama in the manufacturing belt between Atlanta and Alabama. And so she grew up close to that and also close to a bunch of different fruits and ingredients growing up. And they were farming for the family. And she migrated to Chicago, to Evanston when she was 20. And she kept those practices with her. Uh, a lot of gardening. And so I, I learned how to garden when I was like probably five and still help her out today whenever I'm back in Chicago. And that just brings her so much joy. Like she's, her body's very strong. Like the, just the benefits of gardening is, is uh, astonishing. She has like, she has like a grandma six pack. It's why, but the one thing is she loves processed flour and sugar. She loves to bake and has diabetes. I talk about this often with her and both my grandmothers. And so she ate meat 
but just had a totally different diet from my other grandma. Now I always think about like outside of genetics, like how much of an effect her diet has had on her life. I and mean, she's a decade younger than my other grandmother. And so I, I really have used them as a mark of what, where I think I will be at 40 and 50 and 80 and 90. And I'm, I'm trying to think of that as like almost um, a prediction for like where my mitochondrial DNA is going to go and like how I'm going to be affected epigenetically. And yeah, it's quite interesting to have those real life examples for me. And I think a lot more people need to think about their diets, their nutrigenetics as a study of their own family members. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously all of this is really being motivated by the fact that you were a biology major and you actually thought you you didn't think that this was going to happen what we're doing right now you're on a different path what, like what my um <laughs> current job is yeah like, yeah <laughs> i knew when i was maybe 14 or 15 that like i needed to be an entrepreneur i would go on road trips with my dad and i'd be like look we we need to like do a fan betting online. We would just, just come something. up with so many different businesses all the time. And my dad's an entrepreneur. So I knew entrepreneurship was in me, but I always thought I was going to be like a scientist with some company on the side because there was just no examples of that. And then I met one of my mentors. He's based in LA now, Dr. Rick Kittles. Mm-hmm. And he's a geneticist, but he started AfricanAncestry.com. So they're like the biggest the black genetics testing company in the world. And for the first time, I could see that you could be like a traditional researcher and also turn your knowledge into a business model that like impacts people's lives. And so I met him when I was like, I think 22. Okay. And immediately interned for him. I met him at Obama's first inauguration. He said he worked at University of Chicago. I was like, great, boom. I'm moving back home after college. I want to work for you. And so I was able to work in his lab and also see and meet his business partners as well. So that, that had an early impact on me. So as soon as I was in grad school and working with him, I started my first sort of out of the dorm company. And that was a chain of juice bars in Chicago. Right. Called Peeled. Right. Is Peeled still open? So the actual stores aren't open. I have a family member and uncle that's operating production facilities. Okay. So it was a B2C sort of like uh fast casual concept that quickly turned into production facilities we launched right when blueprint suja all these juice companies were coming out Mm -hmm. juice cleanses were the rave across the world so we were just like making crazy money beverages make way more money than like other products in terms of the profit margin and um we within the first year we had a nine person production facility like pressing juices, freezing fruits and vegetables. And that quickly turned into like processing juices and helping other folks out. It turned into renting out the manufacturing facility for other people to refrigerate their products. Even at, there was even a point in time when like I was helping out like hair product companies that were all natural just to help them with transferring into larger scale production. From the beginning, someone told me that you want to be a king maker and not a king. That always stuck with me and just the, the problems that exist in the food industry. And the fact that every company that I talked to that was more than three decades of family companies, they were all producers, manufacturers, like middlemen. And all the companies that are dying are like 
packaged food companies, restaurants for the last like, three years. They're making like waffle mixes and mixing packages. <laughs> the most boring things in the middle of like nowhere, Illinois and Indiana. These companies are like two, 300 person companies, family run. And they're doing production for some of the world's biggest food companies and smallest. And they're happy. They don't need marketing. They don't need press. <laughs> Their websites suck. And they're making millions every month. Yeah. I have a very non-traditional, non-linear path um, <laughs> to where I am now in the food space. I, I didn't have any of this background that you have at all. But it's interesting because one of the things that I have seen that's very similar to my art and entertainment background is that CPG brands like to act like a pop star or like a DJ or something. And right. they're right. not necessarily worrying so much about really making money. It's not really thinking, wow, I should maybe write for other artists. They're like making the same product as so many other people. The packaging is a little different. They might add one extra ingredient that they found on a trip to Mexico. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> That brings me to something, a pattern that I saw just with your career so far, which is super impressive and super inspiring. Acquisitions. A lot of times I also think that people start these brands and they're very tied to them in the same way of a musician or a movie director or something. They're very tied to the story. And they don't even think or even consider about exit uh, acquisition at all. And they want to maybe go to the grave with their company. But then there's also people like you that have created a handful of businesses and passed them off to other entities. With that being said, what are some things that you can give out to entrepreneurs on building and launching with exits and acquisitions in mind in the food space. <laughs> I've been talking, I, I had a conversation about this with someone who's like a friend who we've been thinking about just different business models and longevity in, in different industries. She runs a beauty company and has, has been around for 25 years. Their nine-figure valuation, she owns 100% of the company. Mm. She probably never sell it but doing very well and now starting to invest in other founders. I've been all over the place. I've been like bootstrapped with $5,000 in turning to a million dollar company. I've been like right low six figures and fail. I've been like journey, who knows where it'll go. Strong valuation now. And I really think there's like a mix to it. I think there are people raising too much money. Mm -hmm. And I think that it really hardens the path to acquisition. And it also forces you to run and sprint, oftentimes in the wrong direction without really looking at the sort of ecosystem for potential acquisitions. Okay. So I think the, the strongest thing is be a differentiating player, find and build a product or a community or data that can stand on its own without you as a founder. And that's how you should be thinking about your product. Do not just put the like lipstick or the good pretty label on front of it. Like you really need that core. And I think that's where companies are going to get acquired now because everyone can spin up like a new CPG company, to be honest, like it's a quick playbook. And even if you do spin up a CPG company, that's fine. You might want to just make a few million and get out, but is there some sort of core product, core ingredient, core patent, 
core distribution channel that you're really locking into that others will need from you. I think the economy is still going to be strong for entrepreneurs. Yeah. Generally. And so if you're like managing your cash flow well and protecting a strong product, I think most people just have to think about either not scaling too fast and taking too much of a valuation on. But I think investors are like not throwing crazy valuations out now. For us, what's been very clear is that we've always set three or four target acquirers and tried to build products with them and understand their teams and inner workings. And I, I think that sort of pushes you on the right path. Are you saying you're working with them and it's a mutual understanding that there could be a future acquisition? Or is it just like you're taking these partnerships on and it's just understood in the back of your mind? Like, I guess how transparent is this potential yeah. within these three brands? Yeah, like sometimes these companies will say we're looking to acquire XYZ in the future. Not like the name of the companies, but these types of companies. Right. And in other ways that they've made similar acquisitions to companies like yours. Maybe not the same industry, but companies that were like disrupting their industry in the same way. Right. And so if you can see that they have an appetite for acquisitions, then it's likely that you should start creating some stronger relationships with them because acquisition relationships develop over like months and years. You don't just get a cold email one day or LinkedIn, oh, we're about to acquire your company in a couple of weeks. Watching you for six yeah, quarters. Exactly. There are private equity firms or family funds that are like, we, we need to diversify and we have the operating team for this. And so there's been some private equity like software firms or data firms are like, look, we are acquiring companies like yours. Like, you need to talk to us and we're gonna watch you over a couple of years. So that's pretty straightforward. But for me, it's like, how do we just create strong product relationships with the companies that could potentially acquire us? So I, I love Journey Foods and I wanna continue developing around our key focus areas. And that is very actionable data that helps food companies with their nutrition, sustainability, and costs. And that's what's going to help trickle down to consumers as well, hopefully sooner than later, and not even trickle down, I hope it's more wide-scale impact. And so we think about companies that are like touching existing food companies every single day. So that can be like Google Sheets, right? Like a bunch of big companies, small companies using Google Sheets just to manage like recipe ideas. And like, Raise where do hand. we touch? It's like, how do we touch Google Sheet product? Or like, half of the fortune 500 uses sap for their supply chain management so it's, we decided let's go build some sap integration so that we can bring their data on ours and start giving them insights so that's really how we've been thinking about it and i think if you're not a software company you may want to think about let's say on the cpg side are there brands we could take like rx bar for example is there a brand in your city that may acquire you that's much bigger is there a bigger food holdings company that maybe has the traditional version of your recipe. Like they have Nutri-Grains and they need these plant-based or these protein-driven bars. They don't want to go out and build all that because at the end of the day, community is driving a lot yeah. of power for these brands. I know we said earlier that like some brands are just like marketing and lipstick, but there's also a lot of power to what founders and what communities can be built these companies. Yeah. It's interesting. I think in the same lane, similarly, Dream Pops, David is really like just super out there and 
has a really cool, tasty product. It's a combination. If you really got something cool and you can be really cool about it, then definitely push it forward. I want to talk about Journey Bites because that's actually how I even knew about you or like anything <laughs> like yes, ever yes. at all. I Journey <laughs> Bites is a sensitive area for me. Journey Bites are smoothie cubes. Yes. And we worked on a couple of patterns of them and they're super delicious. And my idea was like, how can we bring fruits and sort of functional ingredients from around the world into a three eighths inch cube that has good shelf life, that has a lot of like plant-based sort of texture ingredients and um, make people happy. I also enjoy is the process of how we brought that together in the data that we collected in that. And especially like with investors, I was just like, look, we're gonna focus on making journey 2% of our revenue and eventually like point five and 0.05% of our revenue because our process has been so appealing to not just journey bites, but like so many other companies and product types. And so that's where journey AI spun out of journey bites. And, wow. and so we apply those learnings and that sort of product development process to the companies in three different continents now to four, but journey bites is going to make a comeback. Like I just really been trying to think about like the timing and the team how to spin those sort of two teams out. I yeah. think it's interesting. Julia Collins, right before she launched, I was sort of telling her how we were managing Journey Bites, and she's done a great job of keeping Moonshot Snacks and Planet Forward. But for me, I don't want to go out and raise like five, 10, 15 million dollars on top just to manage both brands. And that's sort of her direction. And I want to keep a, a small team that's like slow and making sure that the product can, can grow in a great way. Yeah. The interesting yeah. thing is that like Journey Bites is basically the problem that Journey.io is set out to solve. So I think if you went and did this huge raise and kind of went on that type of journey, it wouldn't be so much of a case study to smaller companies or people really looking to understand what journey io does yeah i think every day we explain it better it's always hard to explain to people like look we don't market this but look humans suck at food production at scale <laughs> <laughs> whether it's a restaurant or packaged food or helping hungry people like we are not good at it we're killing people people are hungry and restaurants are shutting down every day and because of that, there's opportunities for Journey Foods to use data to solve so many of those human inefficiencies. Mm -hmm. Because like we've literally had to, in the past 80 years, transfer from like we're all making like gardens in the backyard and have a little butcher down the street to grocery stores. Like we didn't even have grocery stores 80 years ago, really. Mm -hmm. So it's we're trying to figure that out with like our population tripling in the billions and it's, we're just failing left and right. And it's great that a lot of ingredient companies are sprouting up and a lot of logistics companies are sprouting up, but we need all hands on deck to really solve for this like population and like human sort of evolution problem that it's, that's been caused around scaling in food. And that's why we like really pivoted to make sure that we focus fully on journey right now on the software. And then the more efficient that that process becomes, the more efficacious the data becomes the more easily we can have a small team that just goes all out for Journey Bites. Yeah. What kind of team, what, what does your team look like? I'm sure that it's got a few food sciences, but yeah, who's, who's leading the charge? 
Yeah, me. <laughs> but yeah. no, no. The team is <laughs> the team is like really been balanced between food people, whether it's nutritionists, food scientists, food sustainability mm-hmm. managers, and like data scientists and machine learning engineers and product and uh, software developers. So it's been balanced between that. I think in 2022, we're going to shift to a little bit more lean toward data engineers, data architects, data and machine learning engineers. The unfortunate thing and what I was alluding to earlier is that because humans aren't quite efficient at scaling foods, we are seeing this phase where software and tools can replace human activities. And so we have food scientists on our team, but like our goal is to replace the most mundane parts of food science and food science work. And so that's even shifting in our own team as well. Wow. That's, yeah, keep me posted on that because for anyone out there developing any some sort of a food product, it definitely is a journey from your home kitchen, your cottage kitchen, or whatever you're doing to be able to scale it out to the masses. There's so many different things that that come into play. Yeah, it's interesting that you guys will be able to start to to shift that toward AI. When it comes to the end consumer, so basically who's eating these things that your clients are coming to get all of this great nutritional and supply chain information for, what can they do to be able to support you in a way or to be able to move the needle with these businesses along to ask those right questions and to request those type of quality standards that Journey can help provide? One is we don't want food scientists like looking at like books and searching on Google for hours and hours. We want to be able to help them save a lot of time and money. Our main goals save time and money first for companies and for managers and researchers in the area. So it shouldn't take you two, three, four months to find a supplier or find a manufacturer for your product. If they exist, it shouldn't take you that long to find them and and start manufacturing with them. And so we hope that for now they can just use us to make their job a lot easier and they can work with my client. Yeah, that totally makes sense. You were mentioning earlier just about brands that we find interesting. Are there any kind of standout brands that you've worked with right now that we go into a shop, we can say, hey, Journey had their hands on this. There's brands of all sizes that we've worked with um, and are working with currently. And this ranges from date syrup companies that are, you know, quite popular across the country and world to companies like Unilever and Danone. Yeah, we have testimonials. We've, We've worked with also some of the world's biggest ingredient supplier companies that work with a lot of companies like Ingredient. And we're really ramping up our private label services as well. So trying to pilot with Kroger, who originally gave us a grant last year. They're the largest private label company in the world. So it really ranges. And typically it's just the type of role at the company. So it's either founders that are looking to reduce costs and, and not have to pay twenty, fifty thousand dollars for food scientists and food technologists at their manufacturer to billion dollar innovation teams that their process has taken them three, four months to figure out their next launch and the cost of those like those ingredients on like improving the nutrition of that recipe. 
And, and so it's either someone that is, needs to update the food science or sort of the nutrition and sustainability of a product at a company or someone that is dealing with some sort of supply chain barrier, whether it be a founder or like a supply chain manager at a company as well. And I think what's been most valuable for our growth is that people didn't take us as seriously when we were just talking about here's some nutrition data that we can help you optimize. But right. when we really started bringing in costs and supply chain data, I think that's really where our value proposition grew and our, our customer um, loyalty grew as well. And, and we've really accelerated that over the past year. I can see that because at the end of the day, we want to think that it's all about nutrition and nutrition is being driven, but here we are. It's really about the money. <laughs> you have to have both because people are driven, you know, by the bottom line. Now, with that being said, supply chain, that's a really big word right now, unfortunately, and it has been obviously for the past couple of years. How has that had an effect on your business or how you've seen that affect businesses that you've worked with or if you've had to change things. Yeah, just how the supply chain in general. And then also for businesses looking to start, what are some things that they should look out for? Yeah, it's interesting because over the past two years, like at first the supply chain was affected by, and, and still to this point, like human capacity to manage like shipping and manufacturing and customs at ports as well. And there was a little lag at first because first people were like, how do we run a focus group on these new ingredients? <laughs> so it was like, we started getting people just, we can't even meet in the office in person. Can you just help us out? But then it was like, we haven't gotten our ingredients in three months. And then it was like, well, the price went up 20%. And so really over the past, especially like nine months, We've gotten a lot more demo requests and signups just from needing a hand with supply chain issues and cost prediction. We have been testing cost prediction privately and rolling it out more publicly so that this ingredient that you currently have or product you currently have is about to go up 30, 60, 90 days or longer. Or wow. you switch ingredient because you want to make the product better. You can compare like the different recipes over different time periods as well. So I'm really excited about that. I'm excited about that too. I have been on a mad chase for dried fruit. Dried fruit is really tricky. So many companies add extra oil. So many companies add like artificial sugars, like for example, blueberries. The amount of blueberries that have something else in it is just like staggering to me. <laughs> it really is. So for anyone out there that's really looking to start to create different products and different variations of products, I think that's super important for people. And that actually brings me to a question, like when the product development process that you've been able to see with different companies, how often or how many times or what does that process look like of having to change the formula, having to change the banana chips, having to do all these different types of things and how long that takes. I think people really underestimate that part. Yeah, I know the average product takes like anywhere from 50 to 400K, depending on like the amount of units and the size of the company, et cetera, in about a year and a half. So the more complex and, and the bigger the company, those numbers are, are quite high. But it's still for new companies, 
can take anywhere from nine to 12 months for the first products to come out, unless you're just like totally copying somebody, just partnering <laughs> up with the manufacturer, taking the same recipe and slapping your uh, packaging on it. But that'll still take a few months at least. And it's not like reselling t-shirts, which is you just throw your slogan on it. So it's complex at any level and time consuming. And at times there's not even a lot of reformulations that take place, even though each company, each brand, each product can go through a few per year. There's still packaging considerations and consumer taste loyalty that limit the amount of iterations that actually make it to market. And so what we found was like, how can we monitor for opportunities and changes, which can be like alternative packaging supplier, alternative manufacturer, alternative supplier, which are um, things that can change more often for people than the actual taste like oh we found something that's compostable but doesn't completely melt down if it gets in contact with water like something like that yeah or just people wanting to always optimize consistency and cost sometimes a supplier might go out of business might have too many orders may change up who they're buying from and you have to consistently evolve with the supply chain as well and it evolve with your your budget and operations so there's a lot of moving pieces that sort of our monitoring tool and just monitoring your own product portfolio mm-hmm. gives you opportunities for like consistent change i totally get that so you are a Black female founder with, I quote you, a youngish face. I read that someplace. Wait, did I say that? Someone said that? It was something I read. (laughs) It was something along the lines of, on top of all of the other, quote, minority aspects, you also just looked young to people. Maybe that's my, like, quadruple limitation. I don't know. It's a superpower. (laughs) People say superpower and limit, like, barriers. Yeah. I see both sides. And yeah. now, there's definitely been times when I've walked into a room and especially living in Austin, people can definitely spot me as like a tech founder sometimes, like you're on like sweatpants and coding. So real quick, it's so funny. I'm so glad you said that. So when I first moved, like the first year I moved a few years ago to LA, I went to this random party in Venice and I had on an outdoor voices kind of thing and like some type of weird Rick Owensy looking like shearling-ish type of coat and some running sneakers. Long story short, this guy, like a Venice-y kind of beach guy, he said, hey, I uh, like make and sell website names. And he looked at me, he was like, you look like you're in tech. And that was the first time someone had said that. <laughs> And I just moved back into the country. So it took me like another year of actually being around people in tech and that whole thing to realize, oh, my God, I do look like that I'm in tech. Girl, I had no <laughs> idea. <laughs> no, it's like you, people throw you in that bucket. And I mean, at least now it's people are like, OK, she looks like an engineer or a tech founder. But I love art down here. Mm-hmm. And you may catch me at Soho House or something. I don't know. People just mm-hmm. see you and you're like. What do you do? What, what's happening? And it's always interesting for me to say I run a software company in food, especially when I say food. I think people think of either your traditional Austin blonde hair, like running this packaged milk company, or they think of old white male agriculture energy, all the opposite of everything I am. But me at my core, my, my family's history, I am 
food. And so it's always quite interesting to show up in spaces and talk about these things. But I mean, it just comes so naturally to me, the passion I have for the impact in the industry. And it's just been an interesting journey through it. And what I say is part of it is why I called it Journey Foods is because it's both my family history, my personal history, and sort of the journey that we need to take to um, impact the industry. Yeah. We were talking about the Natural Products Expo West. For those who don't know, this is basically the huge trade show that happens every year where you basically get a front row seat to everything that you can imagine inside and outside of your body in just the natural space. And so I've been going for a couple of years on behalf of Superfood School. And for me as well as a youngish Black female founder, if I had a dollar for every time someone looked at my badge that literally says founder CEO, and they look back up at me and say, so what do you do for Superfood School? <laughs> and I look back down at the badge. I'm like, you, but I, ooh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm not wearing, I'm not wearing my boss's badge to like sneak in. With that being said, how has that affected one of the biggest things, raising money, taking meetings. Yeah, no, today it's gotten so much better. My goal, I think three, four years ago was like, I want to be a leader in food. And I could say I've crossed, at least in the early leaders, like smaller merging leaders. Of oh, food. for sure. So now it's like people can recognize me and understand who I am before I show up. But, but definitely it was, there were times when I had like interns and new employees like walk in a room with me and they're like, so you're the founder. <laughs> like, this person, what are you talking about? Anyone but so you. Like, Anyone but you. <laughs> yeah. For a long time, I had a lot of shame with my identity and also with having to bring people on the team to show up in meetings with me. I'd made mm. some terrible hires just to have some white males on my team to make people comfortable. And I've talked to just all types of non-male white male founders that like have done stuff like this, try to show up for investors and customers and other things. And I'm happy that I can feel a little bit more freedom without having to do moves that compromise the medium and long-term sustainability of the company. Absolutely. Let's leave all that tech talk and all that stuff at the door and let's do a little bit of wild card. First of all, you've traveled a lot. So where have you had your best meal outside of the United States? What was it? What was the music playing? Was there a sunset? <laughs> <laughs> what are you dreaming about eating again? Yeah, that's a hard question. Let me think. I know. <laughs> okay, so it's somewhere between Senegal, Portugal, and uh, Thailand. Oh. Um, yeah. But I would say the one that I've been dreaming of most recently is definitely Portugal, because I'll be there in July. And I feel like that's Europe's little stepchild. <laughs> so very underrated. When I wish there was like more just Portuguese cuisine here in the States. And then same with Senegal. Senegal's like that cool-ish stepchild of Africa that's like still emerging in popularity. And so people think of in like Ghanaian and Nigerian food. And then they think of like Ethiopian food for Africa. But I actually yes. think like Senegalese food is the best in Africa. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 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 So food, that's one thing. And then the next thing is, last but not least, is what's your woo-woo? 
And <laughs> it's interesting you laugh because <laughs> sometimes we'll have someone on literally their business is woo woo. So like it's very easy for them to rattle it off. And then for those sometimes that are more like on the business side, they're just like woo woo. What is that woo woo thing that has just helped you to make those split second gut decisions, hire slow, fire fast. Here comes this idea. We're bringing the journey bites back. What is that gas? Hopefully the gas isn't too high. Gas is really high right now, but. <laughs> <laughs> like when I moved to Texas, right in the Q1 of the pandemic, I bought a pickup truck. Oh, oh you like, went my, in. My family was like, why are you? <laughs> I was like, look, if something goes down, I'm in Texas. And yeah, it's been great. I, I do all types of crazy stuff in my pickup. And so I love that. But yeah, now generally, I think. It's just, it's just alignment. And I know mm -hmm. that sounds crazy to say, but like when I am in spaces and places and doing the things that I'm really am supposed to be doing, sitting in rooms with the people that bring energy to me and not drain my energy. Sometimes you can get so distracted, you get so down. There could be so many different things going on that you don't even realize that you're out of alignment to, until too late. Mm. So the things that are serving my energy, physically, the food and the people that don't drain my energy, like continually feed me. And so when things aren't great at the company, I'm like, oh, you said hire slow, fire fast. And I think it's, oh, that person should have been fired. <laughs> three months ago um and like but you don't even realize that so it's too late but then when you fire fast you're like oh everything else is probably going because i let i knew that i was in alignment i knew i could speak my truth and look at them and tell them like i'm sorry like we hope you learned a lot but you're not a great fit for the company or i'm sorry like cheese sandwich like <laughs> i can't do you right now you feel good you're like i can make this Vision, I'm not craving it. So just like the different alignment of, of bringing and choosing the right energy. Learn more at superfoodschool.org.